0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm Jim Russell. I'm rescue pastor at Brushy Creek Baptist Church in Taylor's. And what that means is if it has to do with missions or with counseling or celebrate recovery, those are areas that I work with. And I've so much enjoyed getting to know Matt uh, as missions pastor. I've gotten to know him through that. And then I've enjoyed getting to know some other folks uh, relating to uh, possibilities of doing Celebrate Recovery here, and I just wish you the very best in that and blessings on that. My wife, Dale, is with me today. We've uh, been in ministry 41 years. It's hard to believe since we're in our late 30s, but uh, we have, and we were missionaries in Japan for a long time and appreciated your prayers for missions and for missionaries. I want you to look with me, if you will, in Lamentations chapter one, and I'm going to give a bit of a an introduction to that. Really, uh, you know, Billy Sunday was a famous evangelist, and he was famous because the way he would preach was he would have an open Bible in one hand and a open newspaper in the other one, and he would just go back and forth and preach the gospel you can do that with the book of Lamentations because it's a book about the trouble that we get in because of our rebellion against God. And as I think about that, we go back, we don't know who the author of Lamentations is. It could be Jeremiah, we're not certain. But we know that whoever the author was, that he was an eyewitness of Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 587 B.C., And uh, he is the only one that wrote a book of the Bible that uh, actually experienced what it meant to experience the judgment of God in the day of the Lord. The only one to ever do that. A theme of the book of Lamentations might be hope amid sorrow. Hope amid sorrow. Lamentations is a a piece of work. It's a piece of art, uh, the way it's put together. It has uh, five interconnected poems. Each chapter or poem is based on an acrostic incorporating the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It was likely written to be prayed and sung in worship, just like what we've done this morning. Brilliantly written. And Lamentations echoes the theology that you see from Leviticus all the way through Jeremiah. Now, Lamentations picks up, obviously, it's about lamenting, right? It's, it's lamenting over what has come because of the rebellion of God's people. And the background of that can maybe best be explained by looking at the book of Jeremiah. And I want to kind of refer to that as we prepare to look at Lamentations 1. Here's some theology that you see in the book of Lamentations and as you see in the book of Jeremiah First of all, God blesses his people, right? He blesses his people. Jeremiah 2, 1 to 3. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And then the second would be God's people can be unfaithful to him. And Jeremiah, he minces no words. He's very clear. In Jeremiah 2, 5 to 8, he says... What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and followed worthless idols? They became worthless themselves. They stopped asking, where is the Lord? In other words, they quit praying, right? I appreciated the confession prayer this morning that we need to be more people of prayer, right? That was the problem then. They quit saying, where is the Lord? The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Jeremiah 6, 13, 14. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there's no peace. They're ashamed when they acted, were they ashamed when they acted so detestably. They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. They lost their blush, right? Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug cisterns for themselves, crack cisterns that cannot hold water. Now that was the unfaithfulness of God's people. And the result of that was that God chastises his people when they're unfaithful. That's where Lamentations picks up the narrative. Jerusalem and the temple are in shambles. And many of their people have been taken off to Babylon. We see that in Jeremiah 52. In Jeremiah 2.19 he says, Your own evil will discipline you. Recognize how evil and bitter it is for you to abandon the Lord your God and have no fear of me. And then another theological truth is that as God chastises his people, then God's people must repent. Jeremiah 3.13 and 14. Return, unfaithful Israel. I will not look on you with anger forever, for I am unfailing in my love. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. And then the last part of that theological progression would be this. God will then again bless his people if they will repent. Jeremiah 3, 14 to 18. Return, you faithless, faithless children, and I will take you to Zion. I will give your shepherds, give you shepherds who are loyal to me, and they will shepherd you and will with knowledge and skill. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all nations will be gathered to it in the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. So he's speaking of the end of the Babylonian captivity, and he's speaking of a time when they would return to Jerusalem. That was the near future, but it's also in, he's alluding to the far future. A time, the distant future, when there would be a new heaven and a new earth. And the, that the saved in heaven would be part of the new Jerusalem. That he's referring to also. Now that's kind of a long introduction to Lamentations. But I want to just raise four questions as we think about Lamentations this morning. One is, why should we be sorrowful? Lamentations is talking about the Babylonian captivity and, and God's chastising of his people. What's that got to do with us in 2019 in Greenville, South Carolina, right? One of the hot-button theological issues today is replacement theology. Have you all ever talked about that in church, replacement theology? And the idea of replacement theology is that the church has replaced Israel. So it's real simple. You read the Old Testament, everywhere he talks about Israel, you just say the church and you apply it, right? Now, it's not so simple. The church is a part of the true Israel because there's only one group that's connected by the cross. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you're in Christ, in other words, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're the seed of Abraham and the heir according to the promise. Romans 2.29 says, a person is a Jew or a true Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart By the Spirit, not by the letter. And we know that today that there are Messianic Jews who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, We used to call them completed Jews, but I had a Messianic Jew say to me they didn't like that term. So a Messianic Jew. It's a Jew that believes in Jesus and is trusted in Him. And there are congregations of Messianic Jews. Well, they're Christians, right? Right? So they're in Christ. We're Christians. We're in Christ. All who are in Christ are the true Jews, according to the Bible. And one day in the future, in Revelation 7, it says that there will be a real turning of the Jewish people to Christ. And there will be many, many, many more than you can count that will be in heaven that will turn to Christ in the days to come. So why should we be sorrowful? Because we're just like they were. Many times we're just like they were. I want you to look at Lamentations chapter 1, and let's look at the first four verses. Again, Jerusalem is in shambles. The temple is in shambles. Many of the people have been taken off to Babylon. And this is how the writer laments. He says, How she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow, The princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There's no one to offer her comfort, not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she herself is bitter. Now this is a picture of fallen Judah, fallen Jerusalem, after God has allowed the Babylonians to come and take them captive. Now... What's the message for us? God has greatly blessed us today, hasn't He? We Christians, those of us that are in Christ, but some have been unfaithful to Him and are now experiencing great loss. That's the application of Lamentations chapter 1 for today. I was in uh, Riga, Latvia, years ago on a mission trip, and we had a free afternoon. And I went to this, uh, there was this huge building in the c- center of the city of Riga, Latvia. It was a Lutheran church building. It was so big that they had an elevator in the steeple that went way up to an observation platform. So I thought, well, I'm, I want to see that. So I go over to the church. I go up the elevator. I'm up on the platform way up above the city. And I'm out there. I have my hand on the rail, and I'm looking out at that beautiful city. And the door behind me opens up and about a dozen Japanese tourists come out of that elevator and they come and they come on either side of me and they're looking out and they're, they're talking about it. And I just had this thing in me and I said, uh, Kami-sama wa kono subarashi keshiki wo taite kuzusaimashida ne. And I said that to them. And they look around like this, like what is he saying? I said, didn't you know that all Latvians speak Japanese? Well, uh, we were missionaries in Japan, right? I did fess up. But it reminded me, as I was there, and I went back down, and as I was looking around that incredibly huge building, I was reminded there were only 30 people that were members of that church any longer. And it told me, it reminded me, that they say that Western Europe or Europe now is post-Christian. Now, why do they say that? It's because the church has been unfaithful to God, and God will allow us to be unfaithful, and he'll allow us to experience the results of that. It's not just in Europe, though, is it? Also, I I noticed in the UK, we were in uh, England on a mission trip last year, and uh, I had a missionary in Birmingham, England say to me, Did you know that every week on an average in England, in the U.K., he said, on an average every week, seven Anglican churches close their doors for the last time. And every week on an average in the U.K., six new churches are birthed and begin every week on an average. So what it said to me was, if God's people are unfaithful, God will allow them to be unfaithful and experience what that's going to bring. But God's never off task, and he always is working in the hearts of other people, and then he raises up new churches. That's why you have this building, right? Isn't that true? It's in the United States. You see the same kinds of things. I know our director of missions for our Baptists here told us that uh, in the 500 Baptist churches in South Carolina, 25% did not baptize anyone in the last year. Now, what that says to me is there are churches that are being unfaithful, and God is allowing them, just letting that play out. Now, I know this. I'm the older guy in this room, and I have seen so many changes over the years in ministry. Uh, I've noticed that uh, in Christendom in the United States in the last 40 years or so, so much has changed. There are forces from without, and there are forces within, and too many of our churches are becoming like the churches in Europe. Too many of our churches are beginning to experience the thing that Lamentations is lamenting, right? Today, in our country, it seems like every moral and ethical and spiritual influence on our lives, apart from the Word of God, is opposed to the Word of God. Would you agree with that? Just watch a sitcom, watch a commercial, and you're going to see an agenda. And that agenda is opposed to what the Word of God says. We live in a nation now of civil rights for moral wrongs. And we have a new language, by the way. The new language uh, communicates this. It used to be that we called a sin adultery. Now it's an affair. I would say probably the most hot-button issue is homosexuality. Now it's called gender identity. And we have to be careful about that because in churches there can be three different views of that. One view is that we just want to throw rocks at people and tell them they're condemned. Another view is that we need to affirm people in being who they believe they are. There's another view. And the third view is to speak the truth in love, to speak what God's Word says about something and do it in love. But we are living in a day where we are going to experience, it may not be the Babylons dragging us off to somewhere else, but it's going to be a great, great problem today. In San Francisco, or I read this morning on my iPhone that the first Chick-fil-A in the U.K. that just opened back in the summer, I think it was, is going to have to close in six months due to the severe protests by the LGBTQ community there. And Dan Cathy, who is now the head of Chick-fil-A Company, said, It breaks his heart because we're inviting God's judgment upon our country, on our churches, because of our rebellion against him. We're living in a day now where speaking the truth in love is now considered a hate crime, where sin is now called a mistake, where biblical conviction is now bigoted intolerance, where evangelism is now conversion therapy and viewed in a very negative way, where agnosticism used to mean I'm not sure about things, it now means you can't know. I read this week that the San Francisco Board of Supervisors came out with a new language guideline for their city, and this is their guideline. These terms will be changed. These terms will not be used any longer. Convicted felon, offender, Convict, addict, juvenile delinquent, none of these terms will any longer be allowed to be used by government officials in San Francisco. Now the term that will replace all those is a justice-involved person. A justice-involved person. The word criminal will no longer be used by officials in San Francisco. The word that will replace the word criminal is returning resident. That's where we're at, folks. That's where we're at. And that is what is coming. I promise you the day is coming that if your pastor stands in this pulpit and simply in all the love in his heart speaks the truth about what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is righteous, the day is coming when you're going to experience a great problem because of that. The day is coming when he will be accused and prosecuted for a hate crime the day is coming when your tax-exempt uh, rights and other things will come because of that. That's the pressure from outside. But then there's the forces from within. Many have replaced God with worthless idols and have gone far from God. The proof of this is prayerlessness. That's why Jeremiah said that before God uh, chastised his people, they were, no one was saying, where's God? They were doing everything religious, but they weren't praying. They weren't praying. And that brought what happened. Prayer has become the required opening and closing of a time when we consider our own thoughts and plans in too many places. And for some, preaching has become politically correct. Prophesying by bail, if you will. Eloquently almost saying something. Have we treated our people's brokenness superficially? And are we depending on anything but God, the fountain of living water, resulting in anything but kingdom growth, which is cisterns that cannot be broken? i tell you, uh, today, in many cases, it seems like we're replacing gospel truth with marketing and other things. Yet Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a godly sorrow. So why should we be sorrowful? because we're following Europe and we're becoming what they call post-Christian. And there are churches that are dying. But the good news is there's hope with the trouble and the hope is that God is working in the hearts of folks like Redeemer Church who are now meeting in a church building that was no longer needed. And now it's needed. And there's a community here that needs the Lord and you're here. And there is hope amid the trouble. Second thing is, second truth or question would be, who's behind our sorrow? In verse 5 he says, the Lord has made us suffer because of her many transgressions. Judah's suffering was brought by the permission of the Lord. Well, how do you take that? Does that mean that God is sadistic and he wants to punish his people? No, he loves his people. There are two ways that we go through hard times, aren't there? There are trials and there is chastisement. Trials is when God allows us to experience difficulty because of somebody else's bad choices or because of living in a fallen world. And he does that in order that our faith would be proven to be legit in order that we could be useful in his kingdom's work. The Old Testament example of that would be Joseph, right? And when you go through a trial that's not your fault, not something you did, but you're going through a very difficult time, that's a time when it seems that the Holy Spirit just whispers in your ear, can you see that I'm at work? But the other one would be chastisement, and that's the one that's appropriate with lamentations. And chastisement is when God allows his people to experience the result of our own wrongdoing and he does that in order that we will be broken of our self-will, that we will be hit bottom, as we say, in recovery, and that we will turn to him in repentance and in faith, and he'll lift us up. And that's the picture here. That's like King David in the Old Testament, where he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, and he is on his face in prayer to God, and God says... What you have done has brought a reproach to my name and because of that the child that's to be born to you and Bathsheba will die. That's chastisement. Does that mean that anyone that loses a baby is experiencing chastisement? No. But it meant he did because God said he was. And as he experienced that he's on his face in prayer to God and saying oh God please don't let this happen don't let it happen. But God chose that that would happen and the Bible says that david then got up from crying out to god and begging god that that would not happen and the bible says he went and cleaned himself up and went and worshiped he was broken of his self-will when he was on his face in the dust praying to god and he got up a different person it was like the holy spirit was speaking to him and saying This is not working out for you. And as he got up, that's when he truly became a man after God's own heart. So who's behind our sorrow? God is behind our sorrow over our sins because he loves us. He loves us too much to let us go through that unaffected. So the third question is, where can we find hope amid our sorrow? Look at verses 20 to 22, if you would. Lord, see how I'm in distress. I'm churning within. My heart is broken, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword takes the children, inside there's death. People have heard me groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune, and they're glad that you have caused it. Bring on the day you have announced, so that they may become like me. Let all the wickedness come before you. And deal with them, for I have dealt with me, you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many, and I am sick at heart. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in that, that great story, Lucy, uh, asked the beaver in that story, asks, is Aslan the lion safe? And his response is, no, lions are never safe. Aslan is not safe, but he is good. You can apply that to God, right? Is God safe? No. He's a holy and a righteous God. But he is good. God is holy and just, and he must punish sin. But he's loving, and he's provided provision for our sin. God will never be more loving than he is holy, and he'll never be more holy than he is loving. When I think of the cross, I think of it like this. You've got to... Uh, A horizontal and a vertical bar on a cross, right? I think of the horizontal bar as representing the holiness of God. And because God is holy and I'm unholy, there is a, a wall between me and God. And I think about the vertical bar in the cross being the love of God, that God became a human being and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And where the holiness of God and the love of God intersect is the heart of God. There is trouble for us because of our sinfulness and God's holiness, but there is hope for us because of God's love alone. Hope is found at the cross of Jesus. The last question would be this. How then should we respond? In verse 18 of Lamentations 1, he simply says, The Lord is just. In Jeremiah 3, 14, he says, Return, you faithless children. For the believer, what do we do? When we realize that I am not right with God, I know the Lord, but there's something between me and God that needs to be made right. The answer to that is is quite simple. Confess our sins to him. Confess our known sins to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if you're not a Christian? What if you're not in Christ? What do you do? You come to him in faith and repentance and willing to follow him as Lord. I hear a lot of explanations about how to become a Christian. And a lot of times we'll use a verse that is maybe taken out of full context. Some people say all you have to do to become a Christian is to believe in Jesus. The Bible says he that believes has eternal life, John 6, 47. That's true, isn't it? But it's not all that's true about it. Some people say you've got to repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, Acts 3.19. That's true. You must repent to be saved. But repentance is not all that's required to be saved, right? And some people say you've got to follow, be willing to follow Jesus as Lord to be saved. Jesus said in, in Luke 9.23, If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is true, isn't it? But that's not all that's true about it. So how do you put them together? A while back I went through the book of Acts and and a fresh reading and I just circled everywhere I could find the word repent or repentance. And everywhere I could find the word believe or faith. And everywhere I could find the word Lord or Lordship. I found one verse that had all three. Acts 20, 20 and 21. Acts 20, 20, and 21. The Apostle Paul says this, You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was unprofitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So how does it fit together? I've thought about it like this. You have to repent of your sin to be saved, right? Acts 3.19 says it clearly. But what does that mean? Is there anything in my life or in your life that God calls sin that you have never in your entire life been willing to turn away from? If so, it would be fair to say repentance hasn't happened yet, right? Don't have to be able to, but we must be willing, right? What about faith? Faith. Is there anything that you're trusting in in order for you to have eternal life other than Jesus' death on the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection? If you're trusting in anything other than that, then we would have to say that faith in Jesus for salvation has not happened yet. What about lordship? Is there anything that you know to be God's will for your life that you have never in your entire life ever been willing to do? Not able, but willing. If there's never been a willingness then it would be fair to say that surrendering to him as the Lord hasn't happened yet. Now, what I like about that definition is none of those require being able to do any of it. It's by grace through faith that we're saved, right? So, in looking at our lives as we conclude, is there anything that God is saying that you need to turn from that you've never been willing to or that you, he wants you to do that you've never been willing to, then this is a time to evaluate your heart. We don't want to be guilty of claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace, and deal with our brokenness superficially. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you are a good, good God. You are a holy God, a righteous God. And all through the history of your covenant relationship with your people, some of your people rebel. Every one of us know what it is like to be rebellious. We all struggle with that at times. And we know, Lord, that when your people rebel, then you call us to repentance. And if we do not have a heart to do it, you allow us to experience the result of our wrong choices and in what we would call chastisement, that we might repent and that you might forgive us and then bless us again, even more. Lift our heads up. Thank you for that, Lord. But Lord, I just pray now, as we apply these truths in our own lives today, here in 2019, are we in Christ? Have we trusted in Christ? Is there anyone here today that they would have to honestly say, I've never been willing to repent? I've never been willing to obey. I want God to forgive me, but I've never been willing to do it. I thank you, Lord, that you don't require our ability. You require our willingness. And if we're willing, by grace, you enable it. Even our faith. Even if our faith is weak, Lord. If we are willing, then you will enable it. And I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that they would come to you and simply pray, Lord. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm willing to turn from the sin in my life, but I'm not able. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I thank you that he died, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and the payment was made for my sins. And when he resurrected, the check cleared. It's all paid for. And thank you, Lord, that it's by grace, not by my ability. And I'm willing to follow you to do your will. I'm not able, but I'm willing. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Thank you, Lord, that as we do that, we enter into Christ. We become a Christian. And maybe there are others here today, Lord, as Christians, that there's something that you call sin in their life, and they need to let go of that and confess it to you. And thank you, Lord, that you will renew their harmony with you because their relationship was never shaken. But harmony and fellowship with you needs to be renewed by confessing that sin. Help us do that, Lord, and help our lamentation to turn to hope. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.